Well, um, glad to be back with you here this morning. We're going to finish up what we uh, began uh, last week. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to John 13, if you haven't uh, done so already. Uh, as we mentioned uh, last week, we are uh, now in the farewell discourse portion of John's gospel. And as I mentioned to you last week, essentially, uh, they consist, farewell discourses, not just here but elsewhere in the, in the scripture, consist of a, a great man who gathers his followers together or his family members right on the eve of his death in order to give them instruction uh, following his departure. And that's what we see Jesus doing here with his disciples uh, right before he gets ready to go to the cross. And so what I want to do here, we're right in the middle of, of, of the, the foot washing episode as we began last week. And so what I want to do is, uh, is finish this up and read the, the rest of the passage here this morning. And then we're going to pray and then, and then have at it here this morning. So let read along with me here in verse 12. When he had washed their feet, let me put my glasses on, I can't see. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin our time here this morning, we pray that your word will minister to our hearts. Father, help us to see the example of Jesus, to see the deeper meaning behind uh, what was going on when he washed his disciples' feet. And we pray, Lord, that we will gain much insight from this entire narrative and pray that it will affect how we live each and every day of our Christian life. Let it exhort us, let it encourage us, let it move us uh, to be like our Savior. So we commit our time now to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, start there in uh, verse 12. When, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, if you recall, I mentioned in our last message that Jesus' act of foot washing uh, foreshadowed the cross. Remember, we're right on the eve of that event taking place. So let's revisit that thought as we consider Jesus' words. The, the foot washing is meant to point to the daily spiritual cleansing that is needed because of the spiritual dirt, the sin, that we pick up on our feet while we go around in this sinful world. This uh, spiritual cleansing uh, that we talked about last week, can only take place because of Christ's atoning death, uh, again, which is just about to take place. Now, with that said, let's consider what the foot washing and Christ's atoning death both have in common. They are extraordinary displays of Christ's humility and his love for his people. Or, to put it another way, Christ humbling himself for the purpose of loving his people. Think about all of this from the disciples' perspective. You know, as they're there in the room, experiencing it firsthand and watching him do this to their, their fellow disciples. What would have been more shocking to them? 
to see Jesus wash the disciples' feet or to be told that their Messiah would have to die the most contemptible, shameful, dishonorable death of crucifixion. The kind of death that the Old Testament identifies with the cursed. In Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, it says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Yet together, both the foot washing and the crucifixion, they really tell the same story. The Messiah, the Son of God, in humility takes on human flesh and assumes the role of a lowly slave for the sake of others. Jesus asked the disciples whether they really understand the significance of what he's doing. You know, are they able to see the deeper meaning behind the mere act? And, you know, that's what really initiates this question on Jesus's part. Do you understand what I have done to you? Now, certainly they understood that Jesus had just washed their feet, right? They understood that. It just happened. Um, that much they could, they could get. So obviously, there's more to the story, right? Do you understand what I've done? You washed my feet. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, I guess you... No, no, there's more to the story, obviously, than that. It's more than just the mere external act of what Jesus has done. Jesus wants them to center their attention on the principle that undergirds his actions. And that's the focus in the following verses. But let's ask another question. How do these supreme acts of humility and love affect his followers? Well, the answer is that there is a fellowship that is formed by all those who have been the recipient of Christ's cleansing and love. And that same love is to be what characterizes our lives as well, right? So there's a community and an ethic together that is formed. Verses 13 and 14, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, Jesus provides an assist for the disciples, helping them to understand the implications of what he's done. Jesus affirms that his disciples regularly addressed him with the titles teacher and Lord, and they were right to do so. Now, if you called someone your teacher in those days, that was equivalent to calling them rabbi. And that was a term that was regularly used by disciples in those days, not just Jesus, to address their teacher in a respectful way, much like we see with John the Baptist. That's what they called him. So there's really nothing unusual with that one. But on the other hand, there's more to the story with the other title, Lord. Now understand, even in that day, there could be nothing more by using the term Lord as a respectful address. It could be roughly equivalent to saying, sir, I'll get it. Um, and there are examples in the New Testament of this very usage, where it's just used as a synonym for sir. Uh, but we also find that the word Lord was regularly used in reference to Yahweh in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the ESV of their day. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And throughout the New Testament, this title is the regular way to refer to Jesus. So, in other words, when you read Lord, you can usually be confident that it's referring to Jesus. It becomes a technical title to refer to Jesus as Lord. You remember how Paul highlights this title in Philippians 2, 9-11? You remember that? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is above every name is Lord. All that to say that there is very good reason to believe that this is more than just a polite address. It is acknowledging that Jesus is their God, their master. So considering what Jesus is about to say in verse 19, and we'll point that out when we get there, we can be fairly confident that's the nuance here as well, that you call me teacher and Lord, the master, God come in the flesh. Jesus affirms that address to himself to be appropriate. You do well to call me that because that's exactly what I am. Now, let's get on to where he goes with that. Think, Think about this. Now, if I were to say to you, or put it the other way, if it were you, okay? If it were you, put this in the first person, how would you finish the sentence, right? I might have finished it like this. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash my feet, right? That's how I I might have uh, said it if it were me, right? But instead, follow Jesus' logic. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, look how he finishes it, you also ought to wash, what, one another's feet. In other words, what I did for you, you should do for each other. Or if I did this for you, how much more should you do this for each other? Now think of how Jesus is revolutionizing their culture. Their refusal, as we talked about last week, to wash each other's feet is rooted in a custom that has human pride at its center. You know, there are certain things that I can't do because it's beneath my dignity or social class and it must be reserved for someone who's lowlier than I. Well, Jesus has shattered that way of thinking through this shocking act of humility. Their Lord and their teacher has washed his disciples' feet. Now, there should be a willingness to perform the lowliest of service for the benefit of other believers. That's the whole point that Jesus is trying to drive uh, to his disciples. And, And don't forget what we talked about last week. The external act of foot washing symbolizes something far greater that Jesus will do, right? We're on the eve of that. He will humble himself by going to the cross in order to wash away our sins. Now, here's the thing. We can mimic the former. We can't mimic the latter, right? So that said, let's go to verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus' example has provided a Christian cultural shift that will challenge the old cultural norm. They now have every reason to wash each other's feet and should no longer feel as as if it's beneath them to do so. Humility in contradistinction to the culture in which they lived would now be the distinctive mark of the Christian. It's going to elevate something that was looked down, down upon in their day. So what was once looked down upon as a shame is now going to be exalted as a virtue. Now, before we go any further, I think this is a good place to ask the question whether we should understand Jesus to be uh, commanding foot washing as a ritual or as an ordinance, or as a sacrament. I know some of you have come from churches that have practiced foot washing because of uh, these passages. In fact, denominations such as the Brethren and the Mennonites, just to name a few, there's many others, uh, believe that these verses provide the basis uh, to practice foot washing alongside of baptism and the Lord's Supper, meaning it's a third ordinance that the church should practice. In Roman Catholicism, the Pope, on the Thursday before Easter, it's what they call Maundy Thursday, washes the feet of 12 different people. So the question then is, what is IBC's position on foot washing? Should we be practicing it as an ordinance? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I I, I thought it's appropriate to at least address it from the pulpit 
Uh, I don't believe we've ever addressed foot washing from the pulpit, so I, I, you know, I'm just going to spend a few minutes to say something. I can point to several factors as to why we don't believe that foot washing as a ritual or as an ordinance uh, is not meant to be prescribed by these verses. First of all, if these verses were meant to institute foot washing as a formal ordinance, uh, why aren't there any examples in the epistles or anywhere else in the New Testament of Christians practicing it? You know, there's a mention about foot washing in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10 concerning the faithfulness of widows, but I would argue that it's being used there as a metaphor for humble service towards other believers. We see multiple examples of the Lord's Supper and baptism uh, being practiced in the New Testament church, but a strange silence concerning foot washing uh, were it to be understood, if it was meant to be understood as a third ordinance. So that would be my first point. Secondly, if all that Jesus meant by this command was a mere ritual to be instituted, or at best an ordinance, doesn't it somehow cheapen the example that Jesus left behind? In other words, is the fulfilling of Jesus' command an everyday one that insists upon humility and service, or is it one that can be satisfied by the external act of washing somebody's feet? I think that the example that Jesus is referring to is more of a culture-shifting lifestyle change and not a literal mimicking of the foot washing itself. No, I think it's adopting the spirit of Jesus' actions, not the exact form that it took on the night before he went to the cross. To reduce Jesus' example down to that, seems to me to miss the point. Is it not instead an illustration of Matthew 20, 25 to 28? But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your, what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ransomed, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If, if all of this was just meant to be a mimicking of the external act of foot washing, um, foot washing is irrelevant to us in the West. I mean, do you have foot washing water at your house at the door when people come to visit you to eat dinner? It's really not the way to show acts of service and humility today, right? So it's not the point, just do what I did in this first century context, right? It's the spirit of what he's trying to convey. J.C. Ryle made this observation. He said he wished to teach his disciples that they ought to be willing to wait on one another, serve one another, minister to one another, even in the least and lowest things. They should think nothing too low or humble or menial to undertake if they can show love, kindness, and condescension to another. If he, the king of kings, condescended to leave heaven to save souls and dwell 33 years in this sin-defiled world, there is nothing that we should think too lowly to undertake. Ryle uh, captures the heart and the spirit of Christ's example, and how we should adopt that attitude on a day-to-day basis. It it is for at least these reasons that we don't believe Jesus' act of foot washing ought to be made into a ritual or an ordinance for the church to implement. You know, there are are so many of you in in our congregation that are actively involved in washing your brothers' and sisters' feet. I could say that from the first person. My family has been the recipient of many, you know, in the congregation uh, that have washed our feet in recent times. You know, uh, especially as we've gone through the heartbreak of uh, losing my parents in back-to-back, you know, years. And uh, with Chie's recent bout with cancer, many of you have washed our feet. 
you're you know, self-sacrificing, uh, generous, loving, and uh, go out of your way to minister to those like us who are in need. You bring, you bring meals, you send meals, you give gift cards, you, you send over groceries, you call, you text, and you, you, know, you visit people like us that, that are in need. And I speak for myself, but I know that there's many others in the church that this is true of as well. You, you do all that. Uh, you babysit, right? You work with kids. You work with our kids here in our church. Um, we have new visitors here all the time, and many of you go out of your way to reach out to them. And you do all sorts of thoughtful things for the benefit of people in our church. And that's the kind of culture we want to um, really encourage here at IBC. Some of you are so consistent in serving others, and for you, I thank you and am thankful for you. And I, I could say, without any equivocation, I've learned much from, from you. And we're grateful for you in this church. With that said, let me address some of you in the congregation that are not very active right now and uh, who are not presently involved in washing the feet of your brothers and sisters. My question is, this morning, what is genuinely holding you back? I mean, do you feel like it's too hard to wash another person's feet? Do you feel like it's too dirty to wash another person's feet? You know, do you feel too good to serve or help others? Do you feel as though others don't deserve your service? Are there only a certain few that are on your level that qualify to have their feet washed by you? Are you afraid that others will take advantage of you if you make yourself vulnerable by serving others? Would you wash your brothers and sisters' feet if you were getting paid to wash their feet? Or do you feel like, you know, I don't really need to wash, I don't need anyone to wash my feet, so I'm not going to wash anyone else's feet either. Is it your pride then that prevents you from washing other people's feet? Or is the issue more fundamental than that? You simply don't want to do it, and you're simply fine not doing it. You know, if this describes any of you here this morning as you hear the sound of my voice, let me make this as clear as I possibly can. You're unequivocally in sin, and you need to repent. You are rejecting our Lord's example and his direct command to you to do the same as he did to his disciples. And if you're really a believer, these words will mean something to you, and they will penetrate your heart. You need to get involved. You need to get your hands dirty and wash the feet of your brothers and sisters. You know, if you're really just playing church, these words that I'm speaking right now, they'll roll right off of your back, right off of you like water off a duck's back. You're comfortable as is, and you don't think that there's any reason to disturb the status quo. And if that does describe you, as you hear me this morning, you ought to be concerned for the condition of your soul because you're obviously not living for Jesus. But that said, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Building off what he has just said about his superior position as their Lord and Master and the example that he has just provided, Jesus now emphasizes his point with a maxim or even a proverb. He prefaces this maxim with the familiar, truly, truly, which Jesus often uses to emphasize the importance or the truthfulness of his statement. And this context, it functions as a warning Notice the two parallel statements that basically shows the difference between Jesus and his disciples. Servant, master. Messenger, sender. Is a slave greater than his master? The answer is obvious. No, he's not. Likewise, is the one who is sent greater than the one who sends him? Again, the answer is no, he's not. So the point Jesus is making amounts to this. Can the slave think 
that any task is beneath him when his master has already performed them? Can you say, I'm not going to do that. That's beneath me. Oh, but the one greater than me has already done it. Can you do that? Can, can you think that there are certain tasks you don't have to do when you're a messenger, when the one who sent you has done everything that he's requiring of you to do? No, of course not. So neither messengers or slaves should ever think of themselves to be exempt from any duty that they see performed by their superiors. So with that said, as, as Jesus is looking out at his disciples, none of you have any reason to balk or to complain about what I'm commanding you to do, right? You know, how seriously, as you think about this, how seriously do you take it when you're asked to do something by a superior or one who has authority over you uh, who isn't willing to do the same thing? I remember my mom's doctor. Uh, she, he used to get on my mom's case constantly that she had to lose weight, you know, and uh, but the thing was, he was crazy obese. My mom's doctor, and 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 that used to that used to drive my mom crazy. You know, she'd come home from work. You know, my mom was a nurse, and uh, um, he was so insistent that you know he that she had to get a better diet and lose weight and and all of that. But then he himself was so big, you know. Um, but you know, if he were in good physical shape, right, and he was eating a healthy diet. Now, my mom, to be fair, she would have probably still complained about it. You know, okay, I'm still sick of hearing about this. But she probably um, would have taken it more seriously, right, instead of like, who's she telling me that? Look how big he is, you know, and all that. Um, She probably would have taken, she would have grown, but she would have taken it more seriously. Um, No one wants to be told to be more disciplined by a person who is the picture of laziness, right? I mean, if I'm laying on the couch, you know, and I'm watching TV and I'm just laying there eating popcorn or something like that, and you come into the room and I say, hey, you should be more productive today with your time. You don't want to hear that, right? Well, what are you doing? You know, just been watching the game all day. So as you think about that, none of this is relevant when it comes to Jesus, Before he ever asked his disciples to wash one another's feet, he gave them the example first, right? That leads us to verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The these things probably refers to what Jesus said in verses 14 to 15 about washing each other's feet just as Jesus did for them. So the implication is that the disciples do know these things now, right? And the only question remains is whether they're going to do it or not. You know, there's a lot of things we know, but we never do. And Jesus is warning us against being hearers, but not doers. We mustn't be guilty of overrating knowledge. You know, is knowledge of God and his word important? Of course it is. That's why we're here this morning. But if our knowledge stays in our head, never influences our thinking, never moves our will, and is never put into practice, that knowledge is useless. So don't ever think you know anything if you aren't living it out. Don't forget that no one knows more about God and his word than the devil himself. He is the representative of, really the the poster child of the one who knows but doesn't do. Judas was the same, right? Knowledge of the good is not the good itself. So don't be satisfied with just knowing. Knowing is only half the battle. You need to act on it as well. In fact, I'd say it's questionable that you really believe something to be true if you aren't living it out in your life. I don't care if you say you think it's true or you believe it's true. I think it's questionable if you don't live it out, something in your life, whether you really do believe that it's true. If you aren't willing to humble yourself in order to wash another person's feet, 
I doubt that you really believe what the scripture says here at all. You remember what Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There is a blessing promised for all those who put Jesus' words into practice. And meaning, the blessing is, you will be happy and satisfied. Not, Not a superficial happy, you know, like, you know, oh, I'm so happy today, you know, because I ate something good. You know, it's not a superficial happiness. It's a satisfaction. Things can be terrible in your life. A lot of things can be going wrong, right? Uh, Circumstantially, things could be problematic, but you're happy because you know Jesus. There's a satisfaction that goes with resting in the sovereign goodness of our Lord. Verse 18, I, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Once again, Jesus qualifies his statement by making an exception, much like he did back in verse 10, which we looked at last week. Not all will be blessed because one of you is a betrayer. Yet even though Jesus recognizes that one of his inner circle 12 will betray him, it doesn't prevent him from saying that they were chosen. You know, Jesus used the same terminology back in chapter 6, verse 70. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? You know, when we see this language of choosing, right, choice, uh, you know, we're used to thinking of the doctrine of election, that's how our, our, our minds think, right? We're, we're, the fact that God chooses every single person for salvation before they ever choose him. Passages such as Ephesians 1.4 remind us that this choosing took place before God created the world. And so there, were, there wasn't anything that we ever did to influence his choice. Well, with that said, we're reminded here that Jesus chose Judas to be one of the 12 apostles, but that didn't imply that he was elected unto salvation. He, in fact, would fulfill an entirely different purpose in God's plan. We're actually going to talk a lot about Judas next week in next week's message, but I'll leave that here for for a second. But Jesus is clear that not only was he aware of Judas's betrayal, it was prophesied to happen in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus specifically says that Psalm 41.9 will be fulfilled in, in the person of Judas. That's where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 41 is a Davidic psalm, one in which the psalmist gives great thanks to God amidst adversity, he's he's suffering, and also experiencing the mockery from his enemies. But what is possibly the most hurtful of all, however, is the betrayal of a close friend, which is what this part of the psalm addresses. You know, I've been blessed to have many close friends throughout the years, and my closest friends in life are the ones that I've grown up with. At my mother's funeral, uh, you know, Nam spoke at the service, one of my childhood friends, and the guys I grew up with, including George, were all the ushers at my mom's funeral, people I grew up with from the, the time I was little. And I have other close friends that are part of this church that I'm grateful to have, Uh, loving people in my life. You know, but I've also had people in my life that pretended to be my friend, pretended to love me, pretended to love my family, only to find out later that it was all an act. They pretended to be close to me so that I would confide in them with the sole purpose that they could use what I said against me one day. You know, the deepest hurts that I have ever experienced is by other professing believers who have spread lies about me, tried to smear my reputation and turn others against me. That kind of treachery hurts very badly and runs very deeply. 
You know, as I stand here before you this morning, I can honestly say that I can't think of a single unbeliever who has hurt me as much as some professing believers have. Now, whether they were really believers or not, only God knows that. But all that to say is that the betrayal of close friends or people that you thought were close friends is extremely hurtful. And anyone here who has experienced the same thing, you, could, you know what I'm talking about. You can attest to that yourself. Well, G- Jesus, our Lord, chose Judas to be one of his 12 disciples, to be part of his inner circle, and gave him uncensored access to himself, uninterrupted, for three years. Judas was the recipient of untold privileges as one of Jesus' disciples, and he was even entrusted to be their treasurer. Now, I'm sure the physical pain of the crucifixion was no picnic, right? But we mustn't underestimate the pain of betrayal that Jesus felt as well. You know, the idea of eating the bread of your host and then turning your back on him would have really hit home with Jesus' audience. The assumption is that the guest is either a trusted friend or a family member. And so it represents a relationship of intimate fellowship and to betray someone who has gone out of their way to show you hospitality would have been viewed as particularly egregious by Jesus's audience. And John's readers, as they would be reading this, they would pick that up right away of how serious a breach this was. What a betrayal this would have been seen as. You might be wondering how a passage like this from the Psalms can said to be fulfilled. You know, was this meant to be predictive like a prophecy is predictive? Well, we have to understand that David is a type of Christ from the Old Testament. Now, as we mentioned in last week's message, a type, when we, when we mention that, is a person, event, or institution that finds its intended correspondence or fulfillment in the New Testament. So when we say that David is a type of Christ in the Old Testament— we don't mean that everything in David's life was some kind of correspondence or for, uh, for fulfillment in Jesus, only that many of the things that happened to David would find its final greater fulfillment in Jesus. For example, you think about the great suffering, the weakness and betrayal that David suffered, and he wrote about concerning himself in the Psalms. Think of Psalm 16, for example, right, or Psalm 22, and you could think of these experiences that David himself had, but as you read the language, you realize this goes beyond David's experience. Yeah, it's true of David, and for sure, but more, there has to be more truth than that of somebody else to come. Well, in this psalm, David mourns over the betrayal of a close friend. Maybe this is Ahithophel. Many of the uh, rabbis believed it. It referred to Ahithophel. Someone whom David considered, uh, whoever this is, as a member of his family. It also took place, if you read through the psalm, at a time when David was sick and his enemies wished that he would die. And now his close friend piled on and joined the party, believing that David should justifiably die for being a sinner. John points out that these words would find its ultimate fulfillment, not in David's life, but in Jesus. And that's what John picks up on here as it relates to Judas lifting up his heel against me. This is an idiom that signifies a treacherous act has taken place. You know, although commentators are not united as to what the metaphor is based on, Many think it has to do with the lifting up of a horse's hoof that is preparing to kick. That's not fun, by the way. If you get kicked by a horse, you know you've gotten kicked by a horse. You could die if you get kicked in the head from from a horse. Or more likely, that's one uh, popular way of interpreting this, or more likely, it has to do with the stigma of showing the bottom of your foot to another person because that was considered a breach of honor. 
By the way, it's still that way in the 21st century in that part of the world. You don't show another person the bottoms of your feet. It would be equivalent to shaming your host. So in any case, the point is that it represented the betrayal of a close friend. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is the first to know about Judas's betrayal, not the last. He wants his disciples to hear it from him before it happens so that they may believe that I am he. Now that's a pretty significant statement, by the way. Unequivocally, it's a claim to deity. It's a claim to being God. You know, I am is a reference to God's divine name in the Old Testament. I want you to look at just these sampling of verses from the Old Testament so you can kind of see this for yourself. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Look at Isaiah 41, uh, or 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that, what? I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And then, of course, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In all of the above passages, God unmistakably identifies himself using I am. Now, this wasn't a secret to the Jews. As we've already seen earlier in John chapter 8, when Jesus was having a heated discussion with the Jewish leaders, it culminated when Jesus made the claim in chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jewish leaders, if you remember, they responded back in disbelief in verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them in the most unmistakable use of language in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The I am of Exodus 3.14 in the Old Testament is Jesus the Messiah in the New. Jesus was not only greater than Abraham, he was Abraham's creator. Now, do you think this self-identification was lost on his audience as they heard him say those words? Well, the very next verse quickly points out that they picked up stones to throw at him. Because in their minds, Jesus was grossly in violation of the Old Testament law against blasphemy. And guess what? If Jesus were just a mere man and not the Son of God, he would have been guilty of blasphemy. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 8, there's an interesting polemic going on as God is comparing himself to idols and challenging any of the alleged gods to do what he can do. Specifically, to tell about what happened since the beginning of time and to tell about what will happen in the future before it takes place. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So Jesus is calling his shot. By telling his disciples what would happen before it happened, he's declaring the truth 
about his divine nature. The disciples already knew that Jesus was God, but it would be affirmed once they witnessed Judas's betrayal. And so this prophecy would assure his disciples that Jesus was in control of the situation. He was not helpless, sadly vulnerable to the plotting of evil men such as Judas, but he knew what was going to happen before it happened, recognizing that all of it was part of God's master plan, his father's plan that he is working out from all eternity. He is God come in the flesh, was willingly, not helplessly, carrying out his father's plan. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Notice the interconnectedness between the Father, the Son, and the disciples. The one who receives Jesus' disciples, in essence, receives Jesus. And the one who receives Jesus receives the Father who sent him. So the disciples were going to be sent out as Jesus' agents, and Jesus himself was the agent of the Father. So in other words, the highest possible authority lies behind Jesus' earthly mission, which will soon culminate in the cross. And so this exhortation was probably meant to encourage the disciples and look ahead to their future commission when Jesus will officially send them out as his representatives. And although this will be a high calling for these men, their their expectation ought to be lowly service rather than extravagance, right? That's certainly a reminder for all of us who have chosen full-time ministry as our occupation, that the one who is sending, right, didn't live in extravagance, but humble in his service and his self-sacrifice for the sake of his people, and he sends out uh, his disciples to, to follow that same ethic, Well, what are some things that we could learn here this morning as we kind of wrap all of this up and and think about this together? Number one, Christianity is supposed to shape the culture, not the other way around. Jesus washing uh, his disciples' feet, as I mentioned earlier, was totally countercultural. In fact, so culture-altering that its ethic of humble service became one of the key marks that set Christianity apart. It stood out like a sore thumb, you know? That humility, which would be looked down upon in that culture, is now going to be elevated to a virtue. And who are the ones doing this? The Christians. What is sad, tragic really, is that so much of Christianity today is being shaped by the culture rather than vice versa. I mean, think about it. When churches reflect the world's belief system by departing from its own, why would anyone need the gospel? What do we have to offer to the world if we're just like them? When churches become gay-affirming, egalitarian, right, meaning rejecting men's and women's roles, male headship, female submission. They become abortion-approving. Look at what, what this Roe versus Wade and how many Christians you hear saying that's a, it's a terrible decision. That, that's shocking. Hell-denying, right? Churches now, hell's not in vogue. Or there's no such thing as hell, you know. Uh, and uh, evolutionists today, churches saying, uh, yeah, I guess Darwin was right the whole time. That's how God has created the world. Um, my question is, why, if, if you're an, an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, and you see the churches becoming all of this, the natural question to ask is, um, why do I need them when they're just like me? Why do I need to be part of the church? The church is just like I am. They should join me, right? When churches obey their Lord, and follow his word, they will be culture shapers, not culture bound. 
True Christianity is meant to challenge the culture, not to conform to it. But you realize that's the temptation, right? The world is shouting in every one of your ears, follow me, follow me. Come be a part of what we're doing. It's more fun to do what we're doing. Be on the right side of history. Do, don't, be, don't be considered an outcast. Be accepted, right? Maybe your voice sounds a little different than that one, but uh, that, that's, you know, how mine sounds, you know. But, uh, you, know, but uh, you get the point, though. The temptation, the temptation is out there. And churches are, some are not rejecting that temptation and are conforming to what the world is doing. Secondly, we are in need every day to have our feet washed by Christ. You know, we don't need a spiritual bath because we're already completely clean in Christ. Remember that last week in verse 10? But as we talked about last week, our feet get dirty through going around through this filthy world and we are ever in need to have our sins washed clean from us. Be in the regular habit every day to confess and repent of your sins so that you experience forgiveness and cleansing so that your fellowship with God will remain intact. Right? We need to be in the habit of confessing our sins to the Lord. Thirdly, we also need to actively pursue other believers to wash their feet. You know, serving others can get your hands dirty, but we must humble ourselves in much the same way that our Lord did. No act of service is beneath us, and we should be willing to perform the lowliest of service to benefit other believers. If, ever, if everyone in our church is committed to this, you can imagine the impact that we will have on our community and in our world. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as we have a chance to speak about the foot washing episode, Lord, and how that example of our Lord, God come in the flesh, come down from heaven to humble himself by becoming a man and then to serve his own creation, how that affects how we should live and the ethic by which we live it. Help us, Lord, to be uh, affected by these truths not just today as we leave here, but even as we go into the, our workplaces and our families this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.